hopefully you have an outline that should say the ultimate inauguration. The ultimate inauguration. The grand entrance of the main character in any story uh, is an important event that sets the stage for what happens as the story unfolds. And book authors and uh, film producers uh, often spend a lot of time just trying to get that event right. When the main character enters the story, they want that event to be imprinted on our memory because it is a key to understanding the whole story. And so recently, for example, when I went to watch the Avengers film, Infinity War, if you've seen that, the grand entrance of Thanos is dramatic as Ibonimo announces him. It's very dramatic. He declares to everyone that life is going to change around here because I have arrived. And this is also true in life, isn't it? What do we remember most from the royal wedding? Uh, Bishop Carey's sermon? I think people forget that. I think what we, I think we remember most is the entrance of Megan in St. George's Chapel as she's led down the aisle, as she was received by Prince Charles, whichever way you want to interpret it. That entrance as she comes in is what's imprinted in our memory, isn't it? When the main character of the show, as it were, when the bride enters the wedding, that is what we go there to the wedding really to see, isn't it? And this is also true in the book of Mark. Uh, the purpose of the book of Mark, as you know, is to give us an historical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And right in the middle of Mark, Jesus asked his disciples the most important question, I would say, in all of Scripture. Who do you say that I am? And we find that in Mark 8, verse 28. And that question, as I say, is the most important question in all of Scripture, but it's also the most important question, therefore, in Mark, isn't it? It is at the heart of Mark as he's writing this gospel. You see, Jesus, throughout Mark, is asking you and I the same question. Who am I to you? Do you really know me? Am I the number one priority in your life? And Mark, you see, is written to help us know Jesus for ourselves. To know and love him so that we can follow him. And the passage we are looking at this morning actually helps us answer that question. In fact, verse 1 to verse 13 of chapter 1, as I said, is a prologue. It's an introduction to all of the rest of Mark. And it helps us answer that question, who is this Jesus? And he does this, of course, in a very important way. It is also the grand entrance of Jesus on the world stage. It's been announced already from verse 1 to verse 8. Now he enters. It is here to help us really know who Jesus is. This moment defines his identity and his mission. Jesus is about to be baptized. The Father is about to inaugurate him to the world. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 1. And there are just two truths this morning I want to share from this passage. And both of them are in your outline. The first truth I want to share is that Jesus is a man with us. Jesus is a man with us. Now last week, if you remember, in the evening, those of you who are here, where did we leave John? We left John in the desert. 
He's dressed in desert wear, looking very strange. He is holding a crusade there by the river Jordan. Uh, we see that from verse 4 to verse 8. And it, the, Jordan, the, the way he is, it's the eastern edge of the Judean wilderness. And we can see in those verses that come before verse 9 and 11 from verse 4 to verse 8 that John is calling on everyone to repent of their sin. And he's saying, repent and be baptized. But it is clear as we read particularly verse 7 and 8 that John is just a warm up act. He's the trailer for the main film. He's the, he's the warm up act for the main event. He's the road sign, so to speak, to the main destination. And the main event, the main destination, the main person is Jesus. He's pointing people to Jesus. After me comes one who is greater than I. And we know this person is Jesus. But then, to our surprise, the story takes a strange turn. Mark now tells us that Jesus himself is coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. Let's read verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That should make us pause and reflect. What on earth is the King of Kings doing in these muddy waters? Why is Jesus here taking part in a baptism for sinners? What is happening here? We know everyone who has ever lived is a sinner. Muhammad is a sinner. Buddha is a sinner. Gandhi, Mandela, Socrates, we can add a whole long list. They would never even claim to be perfect. All of us here are sinners. But Jesus is sinless because he is God. Jesus is like the sun. There is no hint of any shadow of darkness in him at all. Peter, who knew him very well, says this about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You've got to read that again. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I don't know about you, but no one has ever said that about me. And I don't expect them to. Jesus is perfect because he is God. And Peter knew him and can make this testimony about him. So why is Jesus here now being baptized, going through a baptism for sinners? Well, the answer is that, first of all, he's not doing it essentially as an example for you, for a believer, so you can do the baptism. There's no hint of that here. Jesus is being baptized in your place. He's being baptized here for you. Jesus is standing there as one of us, as a human being. Listen, read verse 9 again. Listen to how Mark describes Jesus. This is the first few lines. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. We just stop there and we recognize that Jesus is not some character that has fallen off from the sky and just banded his way on the world stage. We remember that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb of Mary. He lives in Nazareth. Jesus is a local lad of Nazareth, you might say. He has family members there, a street address. And this town of Nazareth is quite small, actually. It is 15 miles west of Galilee. 
and 20 miles east of the Mediterranean. Jesus has lived his life in this very small town. Everyone knows him there. He is a man in some sense like us. And that's what Mark wants us to see here. This person, Jesus, who is 100% God, is also a man like us. He is also 100% man. And we must ask the question, how can that be? How can Jesus have these two natures in him? And the answer is found for us in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7. Feel free to turn there. It says this in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 7. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. What Paul is saying there is that though Jesus is fully God of the same form, Jesus did not insist on holding on to the privileges and the benefits he deserves as God. Instead, Jesus emptied his very self, poured himself out. Listen, not by abandoning his divinity, on the contrary. He emptied himself out by becoming a servant. Becoming a man. Mark here, we go back to Mark chapter 1 verse 9 to 11, is agreeing with Paul. Jesus is fully man like us and he's living here as an ordinary being even though he is fully God. Now you may remember that famous TV program, The Secret Millionaire, right? Some of you might remember that. You remember in each episode, what happens is the millionaire leaves his luxurious life behind. And what he does is he takes on the secret identity and he lives undercover in a deprived area. And he does that for 10 days. Now the millionaire, when he's there, he lives on a pool, on a limited budget, and he seeks to forge his way in the community. Uh, he starts volunteering alongside people. And actually what he's doing is he wants to find people who are worthy of his money so he can give them some of the cash. So he gets alongside them and what he does is he takes on all the restrictions of poverty. So when he feels angry, he must eat with everyone else. When he feels unwell, he gets local treatment, though he can get any doctor in the world. And so though this man or woman, sometimes ladies and ladies or men, who do these things, though this man say he has all the qualities of a millionaire and a wonderful house somewhere. Actually, for those 10 days, he's gone undercover. He has genuinely chosen to live poor for 10 days. Now, in those 10 days, he has not stopped being a millionaire, right? He's still a millionaire. But what he has done is that, as well as being a millionaire, he's added to himself a new quality. He can truly say, for 10 days, I have lived a poor life. Okay? And that is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is living 100% as a man by choice. Jesus has put on our human nature. We might say Jesus is like an expensive car, I like to say, which is covered in mud. The mud is his human nature, and the divinity is the quality of the car. Jesus is like that. 
Why would Jesus do that? Because like a secret millionaire, he has come to stand with us. And that is why, that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? And that is why Jesus is entering the Jordan here as well, to be baptized. He is being baptized for you. As Jesus enters these muddy waters of the Jordan, he's saying, look, I know I am not a sinner, but I choose to identify with your dirtiness and your sinfulness. And Luke, I think, tells us that while Jesus is there, he's praying. Why is Jesus praying? I think Jesus is there confessing your lack of faith, your lack of love, your idolatry, your hypocrisy, your obedience, your unbelief. He's probably praying for those the Father has given him. But then comes the question. Why is Jesus choosing baptism as the way to identify with us? Why baptism? Why baptized in the water? Well, because in the Bible, water is usually a sign of God's judgment upon humanity. Bible quiz. How did God destroy the world during Noah? By water. Genesis 6 to 8. How did God destroy the armies of Egypt? By water, Exodus 14. Do you see something here? Jesus is being baptized in water to declare to the world that he has come on to take on your punishment from God, your judgment from God, the judgment that you rightly deserve. We might say the baptism of Jesus is a picture of what Jesus does later when he goes to Jerusalem. Three years from this baptism, Jesus is going to walk up that road to Golgotha, isn't it? He's going to be torn, beaten, and then nailed to a cross of wood. And as Jesus is dying there on the cross, the ground beneath is going to shake. The earth is going to be darkened. Why is that happening, friends? Because God's wrath and hatred of sin is being poured out on our Lord Jesus. Jesus, our God, He's dying on the cross to bear the full anger of God for your sin. Do you see why it's so important that Jesus does this for us? He does this for you here. He's standing in the river Jordan because he loves you. He has come to take away your dirtiness and sinfulness before God. He's saying to you, come to me. Come to me now in all your sinfulness and my blood will wipe away the slate clean. I will save you. He's calling on you this morning. Will you come to him this morning? Some of you are keeping Jesus standing in the water. He has been calling on you every Sunday, every Sunday to surrender your life to him. But you keep saying, I am fine. I have said the sinner's prayer. I am fine. I have already been baptized when I was an infant. I am fine. I have already had an adult baptism. I am fine. I am a church member. I am fine because actually someone has told me out there I have no sin. Friends, no one is fine before God by trusting in those things. No one. Those are the lies from the devil. 
We are only fine by recognizing we are sinners and by truly surrendering to Jesus. Not based on our merits, but based on the fact that he has walked that road to Golgotha and he has been crushed for our sins on the cross. Only that is the way we are fine. True surrender based on the death of Christ on the cross. Knowing Jesus, friends, is not merely saying he is your Savior. It is not a matter of general knowledge. It is having Jesus as your absolute Lord and King. It is becoming a slave of Jesus. Those of you who have come to Bible studies have said, I've used two images, haven't I? I've said becoming a Christian is like being executed. And I've said because when you're executed, you're dead. And when you come to Christ, your old nature is now crucified. You now have received new life from the Holy Spirit. And I've said becoming a Christian is like resigning the chairmanship of the board of directors. It is saying, I'm no longer running my life. The company belongs to you. The company of my life belongs to Jesus. But it's doing that not because through that we end salvation. It's doing that because we're trusting only in the blood of Christ to save us. And those who are truly born again belong to Jesus have affections for Christ. And what they have, what they have, friends, get this right, is a deep hatred for sin. They can't stand it. Their supreme desire is to live and serve Jesus alone. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. They still sin. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, it's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So we still have sin. But when we truly surrender to Jesus, the direction of our life changes. You want Jesus to run your money. You want Jesus to run your time. You want Jesus to run your hobby. What did I say you want? Because it's not, you know, always going to surrender it quickly. Aye? But there's this desire. You're saying, look, I'm struggling, Lord, but help me. I believe, but help my unbelief. Do you know something of what I'm talking about? Do you know something of this change? In your life, have you experienced this? Well, if you do, then you have truly come to Jesus. And he's standing in the river Jordan. Here has your Savior. He is your Savior. He's taken on your sin. And now as you stand in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he has borne the punishment for you. Do you know something of that? Well, if the answer is no, then come to Jesus this morning. Because you are not yet truly converted. He is waiting for you. But friends, Jesus is not going to wait forever in the waters. He's not going to wait forever for you there in the Jordan. You must surrender your life to Jesus now. And if you come to Jesus today, he will not only forgive you of every sin, but you will become your very life. You must hear this. Because too many of us have a wrong idea of what salvation means. And that's why I have delivered this point this morning. Come to Jesus. He will forgive you. And he will give you a new life. And how do we know this? We know this because Jesus does not remain in the waters of judgment. Notice in verse 10, he comes out of the water to a wonderful moment. Let's look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water... We are told, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. 
Notice that Jesus coming out of the water here, I should remind you, is, is a picture of his resurrection. After his death on the cross, just as when he died, he rose from the grave, he's now gone into the water, as it were, and he's come out. And heaven has been opened to him. It's been opened to him because heaven, notice the word, it's been torn open. And this is the phrase Mark uses here and he's going to use later to describe what happens to the temple curtain when Jesus is crucified. It is torn open. Mark is reminding us by these two endpoints that the way to heaven now is being opened by Christ. Jesus, he's there. He's alive because God has risen from death and all who are in Jesus have life in him. And he is baptism. And coming out of the water here is pointing to that resurrection we see three years later. If you are in Jesus this morning, heaven has been torn open for you. If you are in Jesus, Jesus is not just a man with you, he's now a man for you. He's a man for you. And this is the second truth we consider here. Jesus is a man for us. So truth number one, Jesus is a man with us. The second truth is that Jesus is a man for us. Look here that Mark tells us that heaven, as I said, is torn open. Then something incredible happens. The Spirit of God and God the Father show up. The two members of the Trinity. Let's read on verse 10. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Let's read verse 11. And the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What is going on here? What is this about? Well, in one sense, we now have a clear teaching here that God is three in one because we've seen God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. There is that. But what is really happening here is that we are witnessing the inauguration of Jesus Christ. Mark is telling us that God is now formally commissioning our Lord Jesus as a man who will now, listen to this, lead a new exodus. Jesus has come like Moses to the wilderness now to be baptized and God is going to commission him going forward. You see, the first exodus was led by Moses. He took the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years. Now Jesus, the greater Moses, has been appointed now at this very moment to lead Israel. You see, the previous Exodus was pointing forward to this very moment. When the Messiah, Jesus, comes to the wilderness to lead a new people to God. We might say Jesus is our new Moses. He's leading all who trust in God to him. And throughout Mark, we're going to see one word keep coming up. Jesus constantly withdrawing to the wilderness to pray, to be with people. To, and here we are seeing him. He's going to be tempted in the evening in the wilderness. The wilderness, friends, represents this fallen world. And Jesus is leading us from the, this fallen world into the new heavens and the new earth as our Moses. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning. Jesus is your Moses. And you now share his story. What is happening to Jesus in this story is your story. Just as God the Spirit is resting on Jesus here in verse 10, 
He is also resting on you. Because the story of Jesus is your story if you are in Christ. Just as God the Father is delighted in Jesus, He is also delighting in you. Maybe you are currently struggling with some painful trial or suffering. It has left you lonely and broken. And you are probably doubting God. You, you are wondering, you are looking at your life and wondering, what does God really think of me? What does he make of my life right now? Maybe you have recently stumbled in some sin. Was, the week was going great, and all of a sudden, something happened and you found yourself stumbling in some sin. And you have repented of that sin, but the burden of guilt is still weighing on you very heavily. You, you dare not even approach Christ. Say, that burden is so heavy. Well, if you have surrendered to Christ, Jesus is saying to you here, I have cleansed you from all sin. Because I'm standing in this water for you. And you are now in me. And the power of God rests on you because the Spirit of God has rested on me. And that God delights in you because what? God delights in me. That's what Christ is saying. Beloved, let this passage settle your restless heart. If you have come to that position of true repentance in Christ, let this passage chase away any worries that you have. You are accepted in the beloved. Let it fuel your heart now to sing and dance before God with joy. And there I say, we need to hear this passage as a church. Some of our experiences in this fellowship are hardly a good advert for God. I know that. I know that for myself, my own experiences in this church. We have many flaws, friends. And that's not surprising because Vance Hafner says the devil is not fighting the church, he is in the church. And that is very much the case for us in this fellowship. We are sinners. And we don't deserve to be called the body of Christ. This is true of all churches. We don't deserve. We are not worthy of it. We are only the body of Christ by the merit of the shed blood of Christ. The church is an hospital, as I like to say, for saved Sinners, saved sinners. Our sins are many. Corporate sins I'm talking about. We don't evangelize as we should. That's a sin before God because he commands us to evangelize. And as a church, we don't do that. We don't always pray as we should. As a church, I think we are pretty prayerless. We don't visit the weak. We have elderly people among us that can't even come to church. And as a church together, we hardly care for our dear folks. God says in his word, you will bear them by his ego's wings. And we think that's just for God to do. We're just going to pray. We do that. I'm not pointing fingers. We do that as a church. We gossip about others. I have done it myself in this church. So I know that we gossip about others. Because as a church, that's a corporate sin. We have unforgiveness in our fellowship. People that are not forgiving others. We know that. 
That's a corporate sin. Look, the sins are countless. And you might be sitting there saying, look, the pastor's woken up today to have a passion as, as a church. No, I've woken up this morning to tell you we are sinners. I've woken up this morning to tell you our sins grieve the very heart of God. I've woken up this morning to tell you we should continue to repent and ask God to change us as a church. And yet, the main reason I've woken up this morning is to remind you and encourage you that all of these things do not tower one amazing truth about us. And that is, God delights in this church. God, in fact, is extraordinary bananas about this church. I know that. Because the Bible tells me God delights in people who truly know him. And I know, yes, in the middle of our brokenness, there are people here who truly know Jesus. The bride of Christ sometimes looks dirty and ragged, but she's still the bride of Christ. And God is absolutely delighted to be called her husband. The children are messy, but God is still delighted to call us his children in Christ. God delights in us, friends, because it has pleased him to save people among us and clothe them in the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. It has pleased the Father to accept some among us in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's wonderful. I think that's amazing. And I think as we approach the communion table this morning, we should come before Jesus as people who have truly surrendered our lives to him. And we should approach the table this morning with delight, with thankfulness that Jesus is our man who has taken away our sins and that if we are truly trusting in him, God is delighted in us. Amen.